We're in our message series on the life of Jesus. We're going through all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in chronological order, in the order the events happened, so that we can know and understand who this Jesus is for ourselves according to his word. And last time we were in this series, we were in John chapter 9, where we followed the incredible story of a man who was born blind and was miraculously, supernaturally healed by Jesus. And we learned that that man's story is also our story, Jesus reaching out to us while we were still in the darkness and coming to us as the light of the world, bringing us salvation. This week, we continue with Jesus in Jerusalem. He's around the northeast corner of the city by a gate in the eastern wall, just north of the Temple Mount that was known as the Sheep Gate. The Sheep Gate was also called the Lion's Gate in Nehemiah 3 and other places in Scripture, which is interesting as Jesus is called both the Lamb of God and the Lion of the tribe of Judah in the Bible. And as Jesus often would, he will here use the things that are around him to illustrate and make clear some great truths that he wants to share with those who desire to hear. He's going to talk about sheep and shepherds and who he is as Jesus, his disciples, and the crowd observe literal shepherds bringing their flocks in and out through the sheep gate toward the temple mount where sheep would be sacrificed as offerings to the Lord at the temple. And sheep are a perfect picture of you and I because sheep are pretty much helpless. They've got no real defense mechanism. They're totally unprotected apart from a shepherd. And that's why when you go walking at Minnicotta Park, you never have to worry that you're going to be mauled by a pack of wild sheep. Wolves don't fear sheep. Wolves only fear the shepherds. Sheep tend to wander off. They get lost easily. They can be stubborn. They're generally not that bright, but if there's a hole in the fence, they're going to find it. They're pretty high maintenance in that you can't leave them to take care of themselves. And they can be led, but they can't be driven. They're never going to work the land for you. You can move them from place to place, but they're not really going to help you that much. We're sheep. That's why Jesus uses this metaphor. So let's jump in. We're in John chapter 10. We're going to be in verse 1. And if you made it here today without a Bible or outline, just stick your hand up. Let our greeters bring you a Bible or outline because we want you to be able to follow along. So John 10 verse 1 says, most assuredly, and some of your Bibles will say verily, verily. And if you've been around the Word of God, especially the Gospels, you know that Jesus only uses this phrase when he's saying, Tune in, guys. I really want you to pick up on this. Don't miss it. You can bet your life on what I'm about to tell you next. Verily, verily, most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. So the only people who try to sneak into a sheepfold by climbing over the wall are those who have malicious intent, thieves and robbers. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper opens. So when the shepherd shows up at the door to the sheepfold, the doorkeeper recognizes him and opens the door. And he only opens the door to a legitimate shepherd of the flock. And the hidden sort of second level implication of what Jesus is saying here is that he's directing this actually at the religious leaders who were supposed to be the doorkeepers of the Jewish people. They were supposed to know what the word of God said so that when Messiah showed up, when Jesus showed up, they would be the ones who would say, everybody, this is the guy who fulfills all of the prophecies in the Old Testament. He's Messiah, follow him. They were meant to be the doorkeepers, but tragically, 
They opposed Jesus instead of opening the door to the Jews for him. Jesus goes on and says, and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. In most communities at this time, there would be a communal sheepfold in each little town or village or city. And it might have constructed walls or it might have constructed wooden walls or branch walls, but it would be a built structure. And this is where all the sheep in the community would be placed during the winter months, during inclement weather, or when the shepherd needed to go back to his home and take care of some business. And they would take turns as a community manning the door of that sheepfold. And everyone could put their sheep in there and it would only take one doorkeeper to watch the whole flock. Each shepherd would come and then take his flock out to the fields to pasture, a trip that could last days or even weeks. Well, if all the sheep in a community are mixed together in one sheepfold, how does anybody know whose sheep belongs to whom? Well, this wasn't a problem because, as Jesus said, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Do you know, even today, shepherds will call out to their sheep in a sort of half call, half song type manner. The sheep will recognize the voice of the shepherd and they really will scurry over to him and follow him as he leads them out. In verse four, we read on and Jesus says, and when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. So he shares this elegant metaphor about sheep and shepherds, and it just goes totally over their heads. So Jesus makes it clear in verse 7. Then Jesus said to them, I love this, because you sort of imagine Jesus going, okay, most assuredly, verily, verily, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Underline, I am the door of the sheep. You see, while each community would have a communal sheepfold somewhere in and around town, they would also have more rustic sheepfolds out in the pastures, out in the fields. And these would usually be more like natural structures that they were using to their advantage. So it may be a cave, it may be an opening into a cliff face, but something where there would be room and only one way in or one way out. But the problem is these natural structures would have no door and so the shepherd himself would lie across the opening to the cave or the cut into the cliff face and he himself would literally be the door. He would put himself between his sheep and anything or anyone who would want to harm them and any of his sheep who may be prone to wander away. Nothing could go in or out without crossing the shepherd's body. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus because as we know and we'll find out, Jesus laid down his life for his sheep. So make a note of this. There's only one door. There's only one way, and it's Jesus. There's only one door, Jesus. Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. All who came before, who is Jesus talking about? He's talking about everyone who came before him that taught another way. And by this time in history, we already had people like Zoroaster, the Iranian mystic and prophet who claimed to be a god. We already had Buddha by this time. We had Lao Tzu, the founder of Taoism. We had Confucius already. You know, the guy who has all the wise sayings like Confucius say, man who runs behind car get exhausted. (laughs) Things like that. And 
men who run in front of car get tired. Things like that. And uh, I go, go on all day, but I won't. Um, Plato, Aristotle already existed by this time. These are all men who seemingly had wise things to say. All men who either claimed to be divine or seemed to have some sort of connection to the divine. All these men espoused ideas about how a man could change himself for the better, but none of these men actually gave man the power to change. None of the men gave anybody else the ability to change who they were on the inside. And guess what? All of them are also dead. Jesus said, all who ever came before me are thieves and robbers. If you look to those guys, Jesus is saying, you're going to get ripped off. Verse 9, I am the door. If anyone, underline anyone, enters by me, he and then underline will be saved. It's emphatic. And will go in and out and find pasture. What is Jesus saying? The same thing he says in John 14, 6 when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is saying he's the only way to be saved, the only way to have one's sins forgiven, the only way to have access and relationship with the Father. He's claiming that he is Messiah, the Savior of the world. There's no other way except him. Verse 10 The thief, underline thief, does not come except to, and then underline, steal and to kill and to destroy. To steal, to kill, and to destroy. And please tune into this. Don't miss this. Jesus, once again, has just divided every single belief system into two camps. Him and everyone and everything else. Every religious and spiritual philosophy, every spiritual teaching only falls into one of two camps, him and everyone else. There's nothing in the middle that's half good. It's him and everything else. He's telling us that he is the door. Everyone else is a thief and a robber. Anyone who says there's another way is a thief and a robber. And as pretty and enlightening as it may sound or make you feel, if it's not Jesus, then its purpose behind everything is to steal and to kill and to destroy. And one of the best ways to do that is to be deceptive. And Jesus wants us to understand that anything that teaches another way other than him is out to deceive you so that the enemy can destroy you. That's what Jesus is saying. It doesn't play well in our culture that wants to believe everybody's right and valid and everybody has good intentions. Satan is the thief and everyone who does not belong to Jesus belongs to Satan by default. That's the reality. They belong to Satan by default and they're being used by him for his purposes. Buddha, Plato, Confucius, all of them, thieves and robbers, Not messengers of God sent to enlighten mankind, but messengers of Satan sent to deceive mankind. You need to know that as believers, we love every person because they are imago Dei. They're made in the image of God, and there is incredible value in every person, no matter what they believe, and we love every person, no matter what they believe, because they're made in the image of God. But... You need to know that if you are a Bible-believing Christian, we have no honor, appreciation, or value for any spiritual or religious system that teaches any other way other than Jesus. There's nothing redeemable about it, absolutely nothing. And so while we value people incredibly highly because that's what the Lord does, 
we find any other belief system detestable as much as that may disturb your sensibilities because Jesus finds it detestable. He says they're thieves and liars and they might think they're on a mission to save mankind, but they're really leading people down the broad road, the easy path that leads to destruction. That's Jesus' view and you might think, man, that seems a bit harsh, but thieves and robbers, thieves and robbers, that's what Jesus says because any other way ends up ripping people off and leading them to eternal destruction. That's the bottom line. How many of you agree with me that Jesus would probably not be able to find employment at any Western university? I think he'd be sent to cultural sensitivity training over and over until he was eventually fired for intolerance. That's what would happen to Jesus today. (laughs) Now listen, we're, we're talking about the biggest issues of life here. We're talking about eternity, heaven and hell, about finding forgiveness for your sins. That's what we're talking about. And you might find another spiritual philosophy that makes you feel energized, that makes you feel intellectually enlightened. But when everything is laid bare and you're face to face with God and God says, do you see Buddha anywhere? Do you see Lao Tzu? Do you see the Dalai Lama? There's only me. When God says that, if you've placed your hope in something other than Jesus, you're going to find that you've been ripped off. And your last words will be, they were a thief and a robber. Don't get ripped off. Now please don't miss this. As nice as an idea might sound, as harmonious as it might seem, as appealing as it might be because it would allow you to indulge your lusts and the things your flesh wants to do. However it's dressed up, Jesus is telling us any other way besides his way. When you go behind all the layers, when you go behind the person, to the organization, to the institution and you get all the way to the man behind the curtain, Jesus is saying the man behind the curtain is Satan. He masquerades as an angel of light is what the Bible says. And Jesus is saying he's out to steal and to kill and to destroy. Now in contrast to that, check out what Jesus says. He says, I have come that they may have life, underline life, and that they may have it underline more abundantly. I've come that they may have life and more abundantly. If you know Jesus, you'll know what it means to be alive. And if you know Jesus, you are not dying. You are moving ever closer to greater and greater life. Oh, your physical body has an expiration date, but don't worry about that. You got an upgrade coming. But life, what it means to be alive on the deepest level, you're trending up. If you're in Jesus. You see, serving Jesus doesn't mean missing out on life. Serving Jesus means discovering the best that life has to offer right now. And you'll never meet a believer over the age of 50 who will tell you, you know, I wish I could just say to some young people that I wish I had sinned more. I wish I had sown the seeds that would allow me to reap a bad marriage now. Have kids that hate me and have an STD or two. I... I wish I would have gotten addicted to porn and gotten drunk more often. I've I've never heard that. You've never heard that from a believer over 50. Here's what you have heard over and over and over and over again. If I knew then what I know now, if I could just go back and tell myself what the consequences of my sin would be, I know I'd do it differently. I was a fool and I wish I could have those years back. 
You see, Jesus is the way to life, not just in eternity, but here and now. Parents, please hear this. If you have kids, make sure your kids understand that the deal we're offering in Jesus is not, life's really gonna suck here now. You'll miss out on everything fun now, but later on you'll have super fun. It's not a good pitch, even though in some ways it's true. But here is the reality. Jesus is the best way to live right now. Jesus is the best way to have a marriage right now. He's the best way to have a family. He's the best way to work. He's the best way to have community and friends. He's the best way to live right now. So make a note of this. Knowing Jesus is the only way to be truly alive, both today and in eternity. Knowing Jesus is the only way to be truly alive, both today and in eternity. Then verse 11, Jesus is making it real simple for them. He says, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Underline that sentence. And this was something that had been prophesied for hundreds of years in the Old Testament before Jesus came to the earth as a man. The prophet Isaiah said this about what the Messiah would be like. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom. In fact, most of us are familiar with Psalm 23, which begins with, the Lord is my shepherd. So when Jesus claims to be the good shepherd, everybody immediately understands he's claiming to be God. So write this down. In calling himself the good shepherd, Jesus was claiming to be God. He was claiming to be God. They all understood. They all had the idea there was only one shepherd over Israel, and that was God. Many of you are familiar with the types of Jesus in the Old Testament. These are men whose lives prophetically patterned part of Jesus' ministry or life. They're not supermen in any way. They're ordinary men. They sinned. They were fallible. But there was something about their ministry or their life that was a prophetic pattern for the Messiah. And it's very interesting how many of them began their notable life stories doing the work of a shepherd. We have Abel who of course was an innocent man slain by wicked hands. We have Jacob. We have Joseph, who would end up becoming prime minister of the world. We have Moses, who watered, protected, and guided Israel. And of course, David, who jeopardized his own life for his literal flock, to name but a few. And many of you will also recall that in Isaiah 53, the fulcrum chapter of the entire Bible, we read, all we like sheep have gone astray. But praise God, here's Jesus to declare to you and I, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd, underline, gives his life for the sheep. Gives his life for the sheep. In the original Greek, it's a mistranslation. It actually says, gives his life in place of the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, someone who's not invested in the sheep at all, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he's a hireling and does not care about the sheep. Usually the the shepherd would be the father in a family, and then when he had a son who was old enough, it would be the son because that would be the family's whole livelihood. But on a rare occasion when both the father and the sons had to be away, they would have a hireling. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, when the wolf shows up and you got a hireling who's making minimum wage, the hireling looks at the wolf and he says, this isn't worth $10.50 an hour, and he gets out of there. That's what he does. So Jesus is saying only the person who owns the sheep is really gonna be willing to lay down his life for them and to face the wolves for them. It's a small thing, but I want you to notice when the wolf catches a sheep, did you get this? He doesn't devour it. What does he do? He scatters it. 
When Satan is able to wreak havoc in a church on a flock of believers, he's not able to devour any of the sheep because he doesn't have that power. Believers are protected by Jesus. The best he can do is scatter the sheep. And isn't that what we see when a church goes south? We see young or immature believers become disillusioned with the church, complain that it's all full of hypocrites and their faith begins to weaken and it becomes impotent. Satan, the great wolf, can't devour so he scatters, makes us ineffective. That's what his goal is. Verse 14, again, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and am known by my own. Jesus knows you more intimately than anyone else. He knows you better than you know yourself. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. So this is the Father's flock that Jesus has been sent to care for. And in contrast to the hired hand who flees when the sheep are in danger, Jesus says, and underline, I lay down my life for the sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 16, and other sheep I have, this is something interesting, underline, have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they, underline, will hear my voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. I'll break this down for you. This would have been a great mystery to Jesus' audience. As he hints here, there are other sheep that will be part of his kingdom. Other sheep referring, of course, to us, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, something that would have blown the minds of even Jesus' disciples at that time. So make a note of this. Other sheep just refers to Gentiles, you and I. For you see, back in the Old Testament in Isaiah and multiple other places, God told Israel, the Jews, that the purpose of their existence was to be a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles, but they never did that. Instead, they became the, the frozen chosen. And what they said is, well, since we've got all God's holy people here, I mean, we don't really need to go tell anybody else about this. And instead of being a nation of missionaries and evangelists, they got so inwardly focused that by the time Jesus is on the earth, the common view of anyone who's not Jewish is, well, they exist for one purpose, and that's to keep the fires of hell hot. That's how inwardly focused they had become. They completely missed the purpose of what Jesus wanted to do through them as a nation, which was to make them a light to the Gentiles. But a fun side note about God working across time and all of that stuff. You can ponder this on your own time. I had you underline it. Just notice that Jesus says, other sheep I have. You can go into the original language if you want, and it's still present tense. Other sheep I have. And then he says, and they will hear my voice. Future tense. Very interesting. Jesus speaks of those Gentiles who will believe in him as already belonging to him. Very, very interesting. You can unpack that and meditate on that on your own time. Verse 17, he says, Therefore my father loves me because, underline, I lay down my life that I may take it again. There is in this one verse the answer to the huge question, how is Jesus able to do it? Have you ever thought, how is he able to go through it? When you really understand he was a man with a body that felt things the way that any other man does, how is he able to go through with the cross? And this verse reveals a glorious cycle in the relationship between the Father and the Son that goes on and on and on. This is what it's saying. It's saying the Father loves Jesus for being willing to lay down his life for us. And Jesus is able and willing to do that because he knows how much his Father loves him. 
Do you get the cycle? The Father's love is what makes Jesus rock solid in his identity and mission on earth. It's what keeps him going. Knowing that the Father loves him is what gets Jesus through everything. And knowing that his Father loves him leads Jesus to obey his Father, which causes his Father to love him all the more. It's a profound thing. The secret of Jesus' life is that he knew where he was from, he knew where he was going, and he knew whose he was. He knew his father and he knew his father loved him. Hebrews 2.9 says this, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. How have believers made it through 2,000 years of persecution, death and torture by knowing where they came from? God is their creator by knowing where they're going to spend eternity with Jesus and by knowing who they belong to. They have a father in heaven and they are his sons and daughters. Those things are the believer's anchors in the face of persecution. So write this down. Jesus' strength came from knowing he was loved by the father. Came from knowing he was loved by the father. And then you're also going to underline the beginning of verse 18. Underline where Jesus says, no one takes it from me. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. Underline that. This command I've received from my Father. I love this verse. I love this verse because it reminds you that Jesus was not overcome by the world. He wasn't overcome by Satan, even temporarily, not even for a moment, no Everything that happened in the life of Jesus was his will as he fulfilled the Father's will. The Jews didn't take Jesus' life. The Romans didn't take Jesus' life. Satan didn't take Jesus' life. No, he lay it down. It was his choice the whole time. And you need to know, theologically, you can't kill God. You can't kill God. God. The only explanation for God dying is God laying down his life willingly because you can't kill God. Write this down. Nobody took Jesus's life. He gave it up of his own will. He gave it up of his own will. How many times already in our study through the gospels have we seen people try to stone Jesus, throw him off a cliff, kill him, and what does it say every time? But he slipped through them, but he escaped, but he passed through them, and nobody saw him. Why? wasn't his time, and he was in charge of it. On the night they arrest Jesus, you may have read the Gospels 10 times and never picked up on this. On the night they arrest Jesus, the mob shows up seeking Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus responds in the original language, your Bible says by saying, I am he. But if you look in your Bibles, you'll find that the word he is italicized, which means it's not on the original scrolls. And you see the Bible translators missed the fact that that was intentional because when they're seeking Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus doesn't stand up and say, I am he. He stands up and says, I am, I am. And the Bible says, this is the verse. The Bible says that when he says that, quote, they drew back and fell to the ground. They drew back and fell to the ground involuntarily, involuntarily. So here's the picture, the mob shows up. You've got the temple police, you've got Roman soldiers, you've got the religious leaders, you've got a mob of dozens and dozens of people and they say we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus stands up and says I am. Every one of them hits the ground. Just for that one second, it's just a moment. 
and then he lets him get back up. And all that's happening is Jesus is saying, just making sure we all understand what's happening right now. You are not arresting me. I'm willingly going with you. And then even when he's on the cross, the Bible says that Jesus cried out, it is finished. So get this, who said it was finished? Jesus. Jesus called it. And bowing his head, what does it say? He gave up his spirit. Nobody took it. He gave it up. He determined the moment he was going to give up his spirit. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. My goodness, how incredible is it at moments like this when Jesus says, yes, I'm going to die, but that's not the whole picture. I'm going to rise from the dead. I'm going to rise over death, and I'm going to emerge victorious. It's with the same confidence that Jesus says to believers, to you and I, yes, there may be pain and suffering and death in this life, but that's not the whole story. You're never going to be defeated by the grave. You too are going to emerge victorious. Even in the chaos of the cross, God was in control and the outcome was set in stone. So too, in your time, in my time of greatest chaos, the outcome is set in stone. It's set in stone. Through Jesus, we too will emerge victorious. Don't ever forget the big picture. Don't ever forget to finish the sentence. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. The cross was not a tragedy, it was a strategy. Verse 19, therefore, there was a division again among the Jews. Remember in John's gospel when it says the Jews, it's referring to the Jewish leadership. Because of these sayings, and many of them said, he has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So Jerusalem is still abuzz over the miracle he performed in John 9 just before this. It's most likely the same day as that miracle. And the chapter told us that nobody had ever done what Jesus had done. No one had ever healed a man who had been blind from birth. And some people are pointing out the obvious when they say, um, that doesn't seem like very demonic behavior. I mean, I'm, I'm no pastor or anything, but that doesn't seem like something Satan would do going around freeing people from blindness. But all right, whatever. So now as we pick things up in verse 22, it's about two months later, and it says, now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. The feast of dedication was not mandated by God as part of the law. You won't find it anywhere in the Torah, and God never told them to celebrate it. It was a man-made part of Jewish culture that came to be during the time period between the end of the Old Testament, Malachi, and the beginning of the New Testament. The great Jewish theologian Adam Sandler described it as eight crazy nights, and you and I know this feast as Hanukkah, Hanukkah. So just make a note of this, and then I'll explain why it's important. Ten seconds later, that's so great. Adam Sandler is Adam Sandler, if you didn't pick up on the joke. Okay, despite it, (laughs) make a note of this, despite it not being a scripturally mandated feast, Jesus celebrated Hanukkah, and I'll get out of the way because nobody knows how to spell Hanukkah. And here's why this is important, because you will have people of certain belief systems come to your house who claim to believe the Bible, and they'll say, well, we don't do birthdays, we don't celebrate anything because it wasn't part of what God told us to do in the Bible. Neither was Hanukkah. And here is Jesus in Jerusalem 
celebrating Hanukkah. So that's just something fun for you. But I want to tell you about it. It was a holiday to mark a specific event. There was a a king of Syria in charge of the region of Syria who was a descendant of Alexander the Great. And he was a Grecian. He was one of the rulers of the Grecian Empire. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. And he ruled the region of Syria from 175 BC to 164 BC. And he's notable because he was a horrible human being. He was literally a type of the Antichrist. Just as we have people in the Old Testament and in history who were types of Jesus, whose lives prophetically pointed to his, there have also been types of antichrist, people who were just possessed by Satan to such a degree that they were just evil beyond any almost human capacity. And Antiochus Epiphanes was one of these antichrists along with men like Hitler and Nero throughout history. And in 170 BC, he came down from Syria into Israel, into Jerusalem to establish Hellenist culture, which is Grecian culture, saying enough with these Israelis doing their own thing. They need to get in line with the rest of the Grecian empire or I'm just going to kill them all. And so they show up and they say, this is it. You got to be Greek. You got to participate in our lifestyle of hedonism and paganism. And they're Jews and they say, we, we've got the law. We, we're Jews. We're Hebrews. We, we have to be this way. And as a result of their refusal to participate in culture, he killed 800,000 of them in just a few weeks. He outlawed circumcision by penalty of death. And on one of his birthdays, he went into the Holy of Holies in the temple where he placed an idol of Zeus and sacrificed a pig before it, spilling unclean swine blood on the floor of the Holy of Holies, an abomination under the law. Those of you who've been through our Revelation study will find this very familiar because he goes into the Holy of Holies, sets up an image that is an abomination, and he does it. You'll never guess how long after his raid into Israel, three years and six months, the exact halfway point of a seven-year tribulation. As we said, he's a model of what is going to happen again later. And if you're thinking, is it possible we got Revelation confused with that? It's not because later on Jesus is going to deliver something known as the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus is going to talk about how an event similar to that is going to happen again in the future. And when Jesus is talking about it, it had happened almost 200 years ago. Hope that didn't confuse anybody, but finally in the year 167 BC, a priest by the name of Mattathias says that enough is enough. He might have powerful armies and seem invincible, but we're going to take a stand in the name of the Lord. My five sons and I, we're going to rage a guerrilla war against Antiochus Epiphanes and his Syrian army. So when the representative from Antiochus Epiphanes shows up in their town to say, are you guys going to get on board with Greek culture? They kill him. And they kill the next guy as well. And then they go off into hiding and they begin this guerrilla warfare. And they were very, very clever. Mattathias ended up dying and his son Judah took over. His son Judah was known as Maccabeus, which means the hammer, which is just the most awesome name if you're going to lead a guerrilla warfare, right? You can't have a name that means some type of flower. You need a name like Maccabeus, the hammer. And they took over the struggle and men began to gather around them and miraculously, incredibly... Right about three years and six months after the abomination that causes desolation, three years and six months after Antiochus Epiphanes went into the Holy of Holies and desecrated it, they obtained victory against all odds over the mighty Syrian army, the Greek empire, and drive them out of Israel. 
It's now 164 BC when that happens and the Maccabees decided that they needed to restore temple worship immediately. It had been stopped for the last three and a half years and the brothers were actually priests so they cleansed the temple and lit the menorah in there, the eight candlestick candelabra and there was a celebration but then somebody said, I have terrible news. You know how we have to use special oil for the menorah in the temple that is prepared in a very specific way. We're out of the oil. We used it all up just for tonight and we don't have enough for any more and it takes eight days to make the oil according to the specifications of God's law. Later on tonight, the menorah is gonna burn out. Oh, oh no, what are, what are we gonna do? And the way that history tells it is that the Maccabees prayed and they sought the Lord and a miracle happened. The menorah did not go out for eight straight days and nights, giving them enough time to prepare the oil and replenish the menorah. And that is the story of Hanukkah, why they light a candle each and every night to remember the great miracle of the Maccabees. It's just a cool story. Nothing more profound than that. I just wanted to share it. Verse 23, it says, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him. Again, the Jewish leaders surrounded him and said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? How long do you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, if you're Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them and said, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. I've, I've been telling you, but you don't listen. You never listen to anything I say. You don't believe what I say, even though you can't deny the things that I'm doing. The blind are seeing, the lame are walking, the lepers are being cleansed, the dead are being raised. But you do not believe because you're not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. The reason you don't get it is because you can't get it. And the reason you can't get it is because you don't want to be part of my flock. So none of this makes sense to you. It's that old principle we see over and over again that a person who doesn't want to see will not be able to see. A person that doesn't want to acknowledge that they have a need for God, they have a need for forgiveness, will not be able to see their need for forgiveness. Well, what does Jesus do for his sheep? Verse 28, underline, I give them eternal life. Quick test, how did we get it? He gave it to us. He gave it to us, so write this down. Firstly, eternal life is a gift from God. It's a gift from God. He doesn't say I enable them to earn it. He doesn't say I tell them where to dig for it and find it. He says I give them eternal life and they shall never perish, underline never. When shall they perish? This one's easy, never, never. So then write this down, eternal life is indestructible. It's indestructible, when you have it, it lasts forever. How do you know? Because it's called eternal life. It's not eternal life if it doesn't last forever. It's indestructible. And then he says, neither shall anyone, underline anyone, snatch them out of my hand. Let me ask you something. Are you anyone? You are anyone. Am I anyone? Yep. Is Satan anyone? Yep. Everyone is someone. And yet no one shall snatch us out of the hand of Jesus. Write this down. Eternal life cannot be stolen or lost. Can't be stolen or lost. No one can snatch us out of the hand of Jesus, including us. 
can't be stolen or lost. Do I believe that once you're saved, you're eternally secure, unable to lose your salvation? Absolutely. Why? According to Jesus, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. When you're saved, your life is now in the hands of Jesus, and nobody steals from Jesus. He's got you and he's got me, thank God, because if it depended on me, I would have lost my salvation a long, long time ago. But if I put my life into Jesus' hands, can't I take it out too? Sorry, you're not the one who put your life in Jesus' hands. Look at what verse 29 says. My Father, who has given them to me? So write this down. Our Heavenly Father gave us to Jesus. He put you in the hands of Jesus. You didn't even climb up there yourself or anything. Our heavenly Father gave us to Jesus. As we read last week, this is what Paul says in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Oh, so I contributed faith? No, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Even the faith to believe that Jesus can save you is a gift from God so that we can claim no part, take no credit, boast not. It's a gift from God. Praise God, it's Jesus that saved us and it's Jesus that keeps us saved. So write this down. We're not saved or unsaved by anything we do. We are saved and sustained by what Jesus has done. We're not saved or unsaved by anything we do. We are saved and sustained by what Jesus has done. Listen, if you couldn't earn your salvation by merit, how in the world can you lose it by demerit? I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Then he says in verse 29, my Father who's given them to me, just because he wants us to know how secure we are, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Are you picking up that Jesus really wants us to know we're secure in him? If you can't behave your way into salvation, you can't behave your way out of salvation. I love what John MacArthur says. He says it so simply. If you could lose your salvation, you would. That's the bottom line. And what a picture is this. Jesus says, you're in my hand, but you're also in the hand of the Father. And that's what's going on. That's the picture. That's about the most secure and sacred place that you could ever be in between the hands of Jesus and his Father. So what about those people who are saved and then turn away from God and completely stop living for him and never look back? Well, the same John who is writing the gospel we're reading today would also later write this in one of his epistles. He would say, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might be made manifest that none of them were of us. This is why I tell people when someone gets saved, we won't know for maybe six months or a year if they were actually saved because we need enough time to see if there's any type of change. And what we're talking about here is the issue is not can you lose your salvation. The issue is were you saved to begin with? Were you saved to begin with? Because when you're saved, man, you are going to fail a lot. You're going to mess up a whole bunch you might fall away from church for a season and fellowship. You might stop reading your Bible for a season. You might make all kinds of terrible decisions. But the one thing that won't change is your belief that Jesus is God and Jesus is the one who has saved you. 
And I know people who have gone a long way away from living for Jesus, but that belief has never changed. And I've always seen those people ultimately come back because they belong to God. They belong to God. The issue is not can you lose your salvation. The issue is are you saved to begin with? Are you saved to begin with? And that's why we don't want to say, hey, all you got to do is put your hand up in church and then you're saved. It's a little bit more to it than that. Jesus goes on in verse 30 and he says, I and my Father are one. Later on, Jesus would say, he who's seen me has seen the Father. And the idea is that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. When Jesus speaks, he speaks for the Father. When Jesus shares a truth, it's a truth of the Father. He only says and does what the Father tells him to. If you want to know what the personality, if you want to know what the heart of the Father is like, you've just got to look at Jesus because he and the Father are one. They're unified in a way we can't possibly understand from our earthly perspective. He's shown us what the Father is like and we can know with certainty that the Father is wonderful because Jesus is wonderful. Verse 31, super intellectual and logical response. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. I wonder if Jesus is like, again, really? Okay, contrary to what the world may tell you, Jesus claiming to be God is all over the Gospels. Have you ever heard somebody say, Jesus never claimed to be God? This is the second time he's done it just in this chapter. And if we're ever confused about whether or not Jesus is claiming to be God, the Pharisees always help us out. Because anytime they try to kill Jesus or stone him, it's because they think he's done something blasphemous. They think he's claimed to be God. So if Jesus isn't doing that, then why are they trying to stone him? Well, because he claimed to be God. Verse 32, Jesus answered them, many good works have I shown you from the Father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him saying, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. You can underline blasphemy. And because you, being a man, underline, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. You might read this and go, huh? Well, Jesus is quoting directly from Psalm 82.6, which reads, I said, you are gods and all of you are children of the Most High. I think that clears it up. I'm kidding, we'll go on. So in Exodus 21, in Exodus 22, and in Psalm 82, the word God or gods is the Hebrew word Eloach, Eloach. It was a term that was used to refer to judges that God appointed on the earth to judge the nation of Israel. Now, why were they called gods? Because Jesus was, and God were literally saying, you guys are to be mini-me's on the earth. Instead of me judging directly from heaven, you're going to judge on my behalf the way I want you to judge according to the law. You're going to judge righteously. And they had the power of life and death, the power to find someone guilty or not guilty. And so they were known as Eloach or gods. Now, I do need to let you know that this verse gets used by Mormons all the time to defend their belief that we are all in fact gods. That's what Mormons believe. They believe that Jesus began as we are and simply ascended to his godness and their pitch to you and I is that we can also become gods and be given our own planet which we will repopulate through endless celestial sex. That's their terminology, not mine. And they'll say, see both Jesus and the psalmist even said that men were gods. Well, it, it helps to know the context because in Psalm 82, what's going on is the Lord is indicting. He's finding fault with the judges of Israel because they've become corrupt and they're no longer judging righteously. And to get the full context of Psalm 82.6, I mean, I get why the Mormons get confused because you have to do the hard, studious work 
of reading the next verse. Because Psalm 82.7 says, but you shall die like men, not gods, and fall like one of the princes. What God was saying is he's saying, oh, you're like gods on the earth right now, and you think you're gods because I made you judges, but you're gonna die, and then I'm gonna judge you because you're only men. So if a Mormon ever tries to use this on you, you just ask him to read the next verse in Psalm 82, and I think you will agree that it would not be desirable to have both of those verses apply to you. You don't want it to apply to you. So let's keep reading, and then I'll explain the point Jesus is making. Jesus says, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I'm the Son of God? And here's what Jesus is doing. These guys had been playing games with the Scripture to try and distort Scripture to capture Jesus in some sort of trap. And what Jesus is doing is he's just saying, oh, you, you want to play games? So you're going to stone me for claiming to be the Son of God? Well, it says right here in the Psalms and in Exodus that men were called gods, so why are you going to stone me for calling myself the son of God. That doesn't even make sense. How's that blasphemous? This is a sobering lesson for all of us because when we approach the scriptures, we're to do so humbly, seeking truth and guidance and how we can honor God more greatly. And if we approach the scriptures to try and make them say what we want them to say so that we can live however we wanna live, we're not gonna end up looking smart or clever. We're just gonna end up condemning ourselves just like these Pharisees did. Verse 37, Jesus says, if I do not do the works of my Father, then don't believe in me. But if I do, though you do not believe in me, believe the works that you may know and believe, that you may understand that the Father is in me and I in him. If I'm lying about who I am, how do you explain the miracles? How do you explain the changed lives? How do you explain that the Father's being glorified? I'm not getting rich off this. How do you explain the fruit in my ministry? How do you explain your inability to find fault with me? Verse 39, another logical response. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. It wasn't his time. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. So things are getting really, really tense in Jerusalem. Jesus can't really make it through a day right now in public without somebody trying to kill him. So he goes back to Bethabara, this area by the Jordan River. And you might be familiar with it because this was the place where John the Baptist anchored his ministry and baptized people in the Jordan. It's the place where Jesus himself was baptized. And Jesus takes some time out, not to run away or to flee from people, but to prepare himself because the next time he goes into Jerusalem will be the last time he'll go into Jerusalem in his earthly ministry. It's gonna lead to his death and crucifixion. The final act is coming up fast. And isn't it profound that Jesus chooses to refresh himself, to recharge himself at the place where as he was being baptized, the voice of his heavenly father thundered from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You see, it's important that we go back to where our relationship with the Lord first started, where we first began to truly know him. Do you remember Bethel? Bethel means house of God. It was the place where Jacob first truly encountered God when he was running for his life from his brother Esau and he had that famous dream of a ladder bridging the space between heaven and earth and angels moving up and down on that ladder. And after that encounter, 
Jacob sort of wanders aimlessly around the world for several, several years, and then God shows up to get Jacob's life back on track, and God says, Jacob, here's how we're going to do it. You need to go back to Bethel. You need to go back to that place where you first met me. And when Jacob gets there, the Bible says God appeared to Jacob again. And this is a principle we even see echoed in Jesus' letter to the last church, the Laodicean church in Revelation 2. You remember what Jesus said to them? He said, I have this against you. You've forsaken your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember. Remember where you used to be. Go back, rediscover, reconnect. So if you're wandering aimlessly, if your faith is shaken, if you're off track, go back to the beginning and rediscover your relationship with God. That's what communion is for. You see, at the table of communion, we're taken back again and again and again to the cross. We're taken back again and again and again to the gospel that saved us, and we're reminded that no matter how much we learn, no matter how long we walk with God, it never gets greater than Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And the table of communion beckons us to go back again and again and again to that simple place of thank you, God, for saving me. It's not about the power of a place. It's about the power of seeking the Lord. It's about making a decision in your hour of need, in your time of trial when the pressure is on and the temperature is rising to instead seek an encounter with God rather than anyone or anything else. And that's what Jesus is doing by returning to Bethabara. Write this down. Revisiting the beginning of our relationship with the Lord will always refresh us. Revisiting the beginning of our relationship with the Lord will always refresh us. Then many came to him, verse 41, and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true. And many believed in him there. Underline, many believed in him there. So what did John the Baptist say about Jesus? Well, when he saw him for the first time, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John also said this in John 3. He said, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. John was saying, Jesus is the bridegroom. He's coming for his bride, which would be the church, and he, John, is simply the friend of the bridegroom. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all, and what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true, for he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. John taught that Jesus came from heaven from the Father, and the purpose of his coming was to give everlasting life to everyone who would believe in him, something he would accomplish by being the Lamb of God the sacrifice in our place on the cross. And as we just read, all those who choose not to believe are under God's wrath because they've rejected Jesus being under God's wrath in their place. That's what John taught. That's what John said. Jesus is the only way to be saved. He's the only good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. 
And never forget that everything Jesus did in this life on this earth, he did as a man. He felt emotion, he felt fear, he felt doubt, he felt tension, he felt stress, he felt overwhelmed. And when the pressure was growing to a suffocating level, he went to Bethabara where it all began and he sought his heavenly father. And look what he does. Just allow yourself to picture this because we miss this. Jesus is there talking to his father. I have no doubt Jesus is saying, Father, I am overwhelmed right now by the pressure of what our plan is. He's pouring out his heart to his father. He's just sitting there. And then just notice what it says. It says, many gathered around him. Nobody called them. They just somehow feel compelled. They just somehow hear that Jesus is there and people just begin to stream to him out in the middle of the wilderness. And what they do in earshot of Jesus is say, John didn't do any miracles, but everything John said about this man was true. And it says many, many believed in him there. And I think Jesus was refreshed in a mighty, mighty way as what the father was doing for his son in that moment was saying, let me just give you a preview of what your death and your suffering is going to accomplish. As people begin to stream in him and put their faith and trust in him. It was the father encouraging the son in the moment when he needed it. I have no doubt that Jesus was indeed refreshed, recharged, refocused, and re-empowered for the task that lay ahead of him, his death and his victorious resurrection. After Jesus died and rose again, making a way for us to be forgiven through Jesus and become sons and daughters of God, Peter was able to write this. For you were like sheep going astray, as Isaiah 53, 6 said, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. When you place your life in the hands of Jesus, your life is secure, your eternity is unshakable. You are no longer the overseer of your soul. Jesus is the overseer of your soul. He's the one who keeps you. And if you're not saved today, you need to give your life to Jesus. You need to walk out of here knowing that you are a part of his flock. You want your soul in his hands. And if you doubt your salvation, it all comes down to this. Do you believe that you can't be saved apart from Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus can save you? And are you willing to make him the king of your life, the master of your life? If you answer those questions with yes, then Jesus will save you. And Jesus will keep you saved. You can't save yourself and you can't keep yourself saved. Jesus is the one who does both of those things. If you could lose your salvation, you would. But praise God, no one who's ever been placed in the hands of Jesus and the Father has ever been or will ever be snatched away. No one ever. It's not about how good you are, it's about how good God is. And finally, if you're wandering aimlessly, perhaps distant in your relationship with God, growing cold in your passion for Jesus, it's time to go back to Bethel. It's time to go back to the house of God. It's time to revisit that season when you first began to really encounter God for the first time. Remember those emotions when you realized what Jesus had really done for you. Remember that, that nothing else mattered other than being overwhelmed by the fact that he loves you. And you had that thought, he loves me, he loves me. Go all the way back to a simple, thank you for saving me. Thank you for loving me, Father. I'm just here to meet with you. That's all that's on the agenda. You can start today with communion, but maybe get away and go for a walk this week if that's you. 
Maybe get alone in your car and worship, whatever it might be. Go back to Bethel if that's what you need to do. And I promise you'll find yourself refreshed and re-energized in your relationship with God. Let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you so much for sending your son Jesus to be the good shepherd. Lord, we confess that the analogy is apt. We are prone to wonder. We are stubborn. We are helpless on our own, Lord God. There's nothing from us that you need. But in your kindness and your goodness and your grace, you have reached out to us, laid down your life for us, and brought us into your family as sons and daughters. Put us in a place of safety where no man or no thing or no force or no event can cause us to be lost. We agree with your word that we are secure in your hands and the hands of your son, Jesus, Father. Thank you that we didn't earn our salvation. You did. And thank you that we cannot maintain our salvation. Only you can. And so, Lord, we rest in the knowledge that we are saved, secure, by the all-powerful, almighty work of Jesus on the cross. And we rest in that today. We rejoice in that today. We are thankful for that today. Thank you for saving us, God. I pray for each of us that you will fill us with fresh gratitude, fresh awe, and fresh wonder at your saving work and your great love for us, Jesus. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on The Gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.